On this episode, I'm in the room with Zach Eswine discussing his book, The Imperfect Pastor. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 50. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. I'd love to stay connected online, so visit my blog at ryanhughley.com to find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This week, I'm in the room with Zach Eswine. Zach is the lead pastor of Riverside Church in Webster Groves, Missouri, and he's also the author of a new book called The Imperfect Pastor, Discovering Joy in Our Limitations Through a Daily Apprenticeship with Jesus. In my conversation with Zach, we discuss how we should define biblical ministry success, some of the dangerous drivers common to ministry leaders, and some healthy rhythms in the life of pastors. There's something for everybody, so come on in the room for my conversation with Zach Eswine. Well, Zach, thanks so much for coming on in the room. Uh, very much appreciate your time and your new book, The Imperfect Pastor. But before we uh, start talking about that, for people who aren't familiar with you, how about just a little bit of biography and background on you? Where are you from? Um, what's your ministry path and trajectory looked like? So let's just kind of start at the beginning uh, uh, with where were you born? Okay. Well, I was born in Southern Indiana and uh, Clark County Hospital and right. uh, grew up in uh, Henryville, Indiana and other towns there in southern Indiana, right across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. And, uh, but I, I live in uh, St. Louis, Missouri now, and okay. have been serving as a uh, pastor here at Riverside Church for the last seven years. And before that, I was serving as a professor at a local seminary. And, uh, and then before that, I was a pastor for several years near Cleveland, Ohio. So how many years total in pastoral ministry? Uh, a little over 20. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Still in it. So that's a win in and of itself. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk to you about this new book, The Imperfect Pastor. The subtitle is Discovering Joy in Our Limitation Through a Daily Apprenticeship with Jesus. Um, I was telling you before we started that I, what I love about this book is just sort of the uh, uncomfortable way it needles at issues inside of the heart of, I think, every pastor. Uh, in a very loving and caring and compassionate way. But to start, could you tell me just a little bit about what made you feel the need to write this book at this time? Yeah, I just, uh, my, my own experience and heart, uh, as well as uh, the, the challenges of colleagues and friends of mine. And so, uh, you know, the pa- a pastor is a, has a unique position. Uh, re- really, it, it's not an itinerant role like yeah. an apostle, prophet, or evangelist, you know, in that Ephesians 4 right. thing. Uh, it's a shepherd, and the shepherd keeps coming back to the same old place, the same old flock. Yeah. On week upon week, and that's just a different kind of skill set. Yeah. And to have a skill set that requires you to come back to the same place and do the same thing with the same people really goes against uh, a culture that, uh, that values upward mobility, mm-hmm. advancement, doing epic and extraordinary things. Uh, and it, it really goes against my own ambitious desires. Yeah. And so, you know, as pastors, we watch uh, local businessmen and women that we serve, and we see them advance in their careers and right. get promotions and, the, and all that. But most of us as pastors, that's not the way our life is. We, right. We, we don't advance like that. And yeah. so... I just need a lot of help <laughs> to yeah. re- rethink what it, what this vocation is, you know, as yeah. a pastor. 
Well, you write a lot about, especially in the beginning, about the uh, topic of success in ministry. And one of the things that I appreciated, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but as I understand it, you're not arguing that the pastor's desire to be quote unquote successful is the problem, but it's the de- it's our definition of success, yeah. uh, the 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 definition by which we measure uh, our success that's the problem. So, what would you say biblical success in ministry looks like? <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Lord Jesus asks. Well, ultimately, it just sounds trite to answer it. It just means uh, being uh, doing what God asked us to do, mm-hmm. uh, where He asked us to do it. Yeah, and uh, and so it, um, so when those disciples came, you know, to Jesus, and they said, and Jesus said, "What do you want me to do for you?" You know, they had said they want to sit at His right hand and His left. And I get that. I mean, I, I can imagine. I'd, I'd want to ask something like that, too. Yeah. And he took them seriously, you know. He didn't shame them, but he then told them this little bit about how the nations lead, and they lord it over people. And he said, it, it won't be like that for you. You know, you're going to serve the least, and that's what I think is great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, meditating on that, that definition of greatness, which... Uh, of serving the least, those who have no influence, those who can't connect me through networking, uh, and giving them the dignity of, of the Lord, uh, and the love of the Lord, that, that's a different kind of mindset. And, you know, after Jesus, and Jesus, our Lord pictures this, after he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. The very next thing he does is he takes them to this whole group of people. And uh, this group of people is just, they're haunted, you know, they're mind broken, they're epileptics and seizures, they're sick. They come from the Decapolis, which means a lot of them were Gentiles with, who wor- worshipped all kinds of gods. It's just this motley group of people uh, been, uh, within Roman occupation. Yeah. They, they had no cloud. And, um, and the Lord then stands up in such a feisty way and says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, Yeah. those who mourn, you know? Yeah. So greatness, blessedness gets turned on its head there. Um, and I'm just trying to find by, I think we all are trying to find our way toward what Jesus says a great thing is. So aspire to greatness. We have to aspire to greatness. It just has to be the definition of greatness that the Lord gives it. Yeah. That's and that's word. a challenge, you know? Yeah, it is. I've been, since planting Redemption, I've been very involved in the subculture of church planting. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've done a lot of assessing of church planters and, you know, just through relationship. And virtually every, especially new church planter, it seems like that I meet, everybody wants to impact the world for Christ. Everybody wants to start a movement. Everybody wants to change the world. And on the surface, these seem like very honorable and noble aspirations. But if I'm honest, and I'm not just pointing the finger at, at others, but at myself, if I'm honest, these types of things that we, that I think and that I say, I, I do that in order to baptize, I think, what are really less noble motivations that truly drive me much of the time. And so in your experience, I know you have a lot of experience with pastors and planters, what do you see beneath the things that we say? What do you see as some of the most common drivers in pastors and church planners? Yeah, has, uh, we boast beyond our limits. And yeah. so, you know, the Apostle Paul used that language when he's um, in the Corinthian letter, and I'm forgetting where at the moment, but he, he says he's not going to boast beyond his limits. Um, 
that, that we've been, and when we compare ourselves with one another, we show that we don't have understanding. Mm-hmm. So, so we have the idea that we're unlimited and we can just continue to do and do and do and get larger and larger and larger. But the, when, you're, when we go back and look at those gift lists, um, and we go back and look at the, you know, the girl that, you know, Haman's slave girl mm-hmm. that told her about the man of God who could heal his leprosy, we, or, or, or Jesus pointing his disciples to the wid- widow with the coin and, uh, and, and saying, she's, she's really the one to remember here. Or when he's saying uh, of the tax collector and the Bible guy in the temple, and the tax collector is the one who's the blessed one. Yeah. Uh, when, when he's talking like that, that's just a very different way from our corporate American world. And, uh, and so I think we have a real struggle because uh, we've just grown up in this. If, if we live in New Zealand, for example, our brothers and sisters in New Zealand, they just don't have that. If they plant a church, they, are gonna, they have no assumption that they have to hit a certain mark within three years. Mm-hmm. Just doesn't just, exist. Just doesn't exist. Yeah, B- because the it, it, it's a profoundly post-Christian culture. Yeah, um, uh, and you you simply can't expect to plant a church and have that kind of growth. And a large church there among you know uh, churches that resemble ours, a large church is forty people. Yeah, you know sixty people. Yeah, and that would be considered um, faithful and successful if you planted a church and you had 60 people after three years. That would be remarkable in a place like that. Yeah. So we sort of have a, a challenge, unique challenge of being an American pastor in the conditions that we live in. And so I feel I feel a lot for church planters. It's like Marines hitting the beach. Yeah. You know. And what happens is you have businessmen who are earnest and love the Lord businessmen and women, and they're the ones supporting you. And, uh, and you, you generally get three years to prove yourself viable, which means you have to, you now have to demonstrate an organizational viability, which is what any 501c3 has to do or any entrepreneur starting a company has to do. Sure. And once you do that, you're no longer in your area of pastoral vocation. Yeah. You're 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 now uh, the 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 CEO of an organization having to prove viability to shareholders, right? Uh, and that puts a great deal of pressure on us to show numerically that we are financially viable and efficient. Yeah. And the trouble with that is, is that the work we do in terms of soul change in human beings is rarely efficient. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's often slow and small, and so it just puts us in this crosshairs of a pressure that really wears us out. Yeah. I know one of the things that you write about as a driver in pastors' hearts is fear. You write in The Imperfect Pastor that pastors have two great fears. Number one, people will leave, and number two, will be judged as failures. So what do you think is that, what do you believe is at the root of those two fears? Why, why do we, is it just being fired? I mean, what do you think are some of the main fears? Is it an identity issue? What are the fears that are driving so many of us in ministry? Yeah. Like uh, the fear of being judged a failure. Yeah. And it has a double whammy to it because it's a failure with God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I start a company, I try to start a, a restaurant, and it doesn't make it in three years. Well, I I, I failed, but I tried, you know. And, right. But if you if you do a work for God, and you fail, now now people 
they judge failure on the basis of things the Lord does not judge failure on. Yeah. For a pastor. And so we're in that, we're surrounded by that kind of measurement and judgment. Yeah. So we're, we're afraid of being judged a failure as it relates to God, mm-hmm. which is huge. I mean, terribly damaging um, on the one hand and terribly frightful because we're all out for God. I mean, that's our whole desire. Right. Um, and so we might be faithful men, uh, uh, but our church plant didn't go. Yeah. Now, our whole theology says there's no formula to justification by faith right. alone, that the, the Holy Spirit blows where He wills. Right. Uh, but if we go into an area where the Holy Spirit, for His purposes, is not bringing people to Jesus in the manner we had hoped, we'll be judged a failure. I think we're deeply afraid of that. I am. I'm yeah. terribly afraid to be thought a failure as it relates to God. Yeah. Yeah. You begin your chapter on immediacy with a quote by Eugene Peterson. Peterson said, I think the besetting sin of pastors, maybe especially evangelical pastors, is impatience, yeah. which, man, I can totally relate to that. So just talk to me about the, that problem specifically, the problem of impatience, and, and, and what is it that you think informs that in us? Well, we, our culture defines greatness, which is really what we're talking about, a yeah. different definition yeah. of greatness. So um, culturally, to, we're, we're supposed to do large things in famous ways as fast as we can. Right. And if we do large, famous, fast, then that's considered successful. Yep. But most things that actually matter in life require us to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, learning how to forgive, growing in Christ, learning how to play an instrument, you know, gaining a skill. At a, at a job, you know, most friendship, marriage, parenting, I mean, <laughs> most of that stuff takes small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. And so our business as pastors requires a definition of success that looks at slow, long, mostly overlooked. Mm-hmm. That requires profound patience. Yeah. The shepherd coming back, returning to the same hill to do small, mostly overlooked things uh, requires, it's a patient work. And so that if that to, to to see someone justified by faith in Christ, to see them grow in sanctification, to see them take hold of the promises of their adoption, you know, in Christ, uh, to see them grow in their sensible, tangible, savory awareness of their union with Him. I mean, generally speaking, I'm 46 and I'm still, <laughs> yeah, I'm still growing. You know, those like, things don't happen quickly. Yeah, they just don't happen quickly by and large in the Lord's scheme of things, and so. So it's um, a way I think of it as game speed. You know, if you uh, if, if you if you practice high school basketball or junior high basketball around here, the coaches will say we're going to practice at game speed. It's one thing to be able to hit a three point jump shot uh, when you're just standing there positioning yourself. It's another right. thing to do it at full speed, pull up, someone in your face, and you're out of breath, and to hit that same shot. So we're going to practice at game speed. Well, what's the pastor's game speed? <laughs> yeah, not that. It's not that. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually not. Uh, and so it's just a, wow, a different patience is our game speed. Now, here's the thing. When we think about haste and speed, most of the time the Bible refers to that as folly. Yep. So just look up the word haste on your ESV online. Yep. And it's almost so, always associated with folly. And the thing associated with wisdom is patience. Yep. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. 
And so we're just in this crucible classroom of discipleship into a life of patient waiting upon God for Him to do His work as we actively uh, pursue Him day upon day. Now, we know the Lord said He values this because um, not only is He Himself patient, you know, what's the game speed of God? Mm-hmm. Man, He's just willing to let Jesus be in a carpenter shop for 30 years right? while Herod's doing his worst, you know, and all that stuff. Yep. So. Yeah, you uh, you write a lot about the um, the heart and internal factors that play into this, but I was wondering what you think are some of the common external factors that we should be mindful of managing that fuel this broken definition of success, and then I think the unsustainable pace that we run at. So you've mentioned, you know, allowing maybe the pressures of of business people who yes. bring that those same presuppositions to yes. ministry. Um, so that's one for sure. But are there other external factors you think that you would warn pastors? You really have to be careful not to allow these external factors to inform and define what success is for us. Yes. So, um, you know, we're, we're tempted to try to be everywhere, do everything, know everything. And yeah. only God has that job description. So we, for, to begin, we confess before the Lord, uh, we were never meant to do everything, never meant to fix everything, be everywhere, know everything. Only He is. Mm-hmm. And so we have to expose our noble limits at that point. Number two, we train these earnest business leaders. So for uh, day upon day, week upon week, we have to say this in our local leadership context. There's emergency room decision-making, and there's boardroom decision-making, and there's the gospel. Emergency room decision-making values efficiency and immediacy. Mm-hmm. Crisis, right? And right. sometimes, and we have we have to have that sometimes. Yeah. Boardroom efficiency, uh, boardroom uh, decision making requires efficiency and and the bottom line, mm-hmm. money, quantitative efficiency, and we have to have that. We got, but, but uh, most of the stuff that we're doing as pastors in the lives of ordinary people, coming to know Christ, growing up in Christ, aging well with Christ. Those uh, Jesus just often is not efficient in the way we would think of it. He's not doing it immediately. Mm-hmm. He brings he doesn't bring immediate relief. So there's so we got to help these guys begin and men and women in our leadership teams begin to think about a different value. Uh, if you remove immediacy and relief, quantity and money from the equation, what do you have left? Mm-hmm. And Answering that question is the thing Jesus uses uh, most of the time. So training those folks. The other thing is the way we measure productivity in a day. Yeah. So if I stop, if I pray before you and I talk, uh-huh. uh, which I did, and then if I pray after we finish, which I will by the grace of God, to take uh, that, that's going to be six minutes. Okay. That I just added to my day. Yep. Uh, if I do that before every meeting I have today, and after every meeting I have today, then I've just added an hour to my day of prayer and preparation before and after I met with someone mm-hmm. so that I'm attentive. I have a posture of heart of attentiveness. If I, if I do that every day, that means at the end of the week, I've cut four hours out of my week, you know, give or take. Sure. Partic- particularly if you're doing that before and after emails, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, the emails that are not just task emails, but the emails where someone's asking you a question or that, and we get in that mode and we just want to click it off as a task, but this is really like sitting down with someone. Mm-hmm. So if we take the time to pray before, pray after, be attentive to what the Lord's doing in the moment, 
that's going to shave off a good three to four hours of our week. It's going to feel like a waste of time, mm-hmm. which is sad. It is. That prayerful attentiveness to people is a way, as shepherds, yep. right? We're talking about being shepherds. Right. It's a waste of time. But it's going to feel like a waste of time, and that's a lie. It was not a waste of time. You were doing what a shepherd's supposed to do. Yep. Now, if you're managing people, and those people are supposed to be shepherds, that means you have to begin to give them 10 days to do what you would have early, what you before you would have expected them to accomplish in five days. Mm-hmm. You got to give them ten rather than five. Yeah, not because they're lazy or wasting time, but because now they're trying to build in a shepherd's work into their week, which is not just meeting with someone to meet in order to plan and to plan in order to meet. Yeah, but meeting with someone to actually give them attentive, hospitable space as a shepherd. Yeah, and so at the end of the day, at the end of the year, if it if it then took us. I don't know, seven months to do something, it would, it, without that kind of prayerful attentiveness, it would have taken us three months. We got to believe we've not wasted any time at all. 30 yeah. years from now, it won't have mattered. We, seven months or three months will not seem like much. And the quality of the thing we did would have mattered. Third, that really comes into play with volunteers. Most of us are working with volunteers. Right. They're, they're, they have no incentive, uh, no financial incentive. Uh, we're not the military. Right. I mean, we can't, we can use guilty God talk as pastors, but we're going to resist that because it damages people. Yep. So that means we're going to have to give a little more time to the seven months rather than the three months, because these are volunteer earnest hearted, you know, 20% doing 80% of the work given their extra four hours a week. So we're going to not burden them down, but we're going to give a little longer to do it. Yeah. We're going to finish everything we would have finished otherwise. We're just going to finish it differently. Yeah. It will have taken a little longer, but qualitatively, we will have done it more like a shepherd than an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I think that's worth it. Mm-hmm. But it all goes back to that first thing of trying to train our, our leaders to think like this. And that takes a little bit of time. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to share a simple way that you can help support In The Room. As you know, most weeks I'm talking with someone who's written a book about something. Now, I love books, and I know firsthand how expensive it can be to try to keep up with all the books that you'd like to read, including the ones that you hear about on this show. And this is why I'm so excited about our new partnership with Givingtons.com. Like Amazon, they sell books at discounted rates. But here's what's great for In The Room. When you buy a book through our store, we receive a portion of that sale to help continue bringing great weekly content. So for whatever featured book we're discussing on this week's episode, we receive a full $2. And for books from past episodes, we receive $1.25. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but I want to help get this podcast to as many people as possible, and I need your help. So will you keep spreading the word on social media, and will you consider buying this week's book through givingtons.com? Just go to givingtons.com slash in the room. There you're going to find not only this episode's book, but books written by past guests as well. So check out our new store at givingtons.com slash in the room. Thanks so much for your help, and now back to the conversation. What about, I know that a lot of, a lot of pastors read, I do, I, I have a long stack of books on my shelf that are written by business leaders, yes. uh, two leaders, how to be a better leader, how to manage time more effectively, how to be more efficient. Um, if you don't filter that stuff, 
appropriately, we can allow business leaders to define what it looks like to be a ministry leader for us, which is what you're talking about is problematic. So I'm curious as someone who is a pastor, trains pastors, works in the seminary world, how do you feel about Christian pastors reading you know, business books. Should we, how should we do that? Is that something that you encourage, discourage because of the danger involved and not filtering it appropriately or the pressures that it could put on us? But what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's just such a good question. Um, because, um, you know, uh, it, can, it can sound like I'm critiquing the vocation of being a business person. I'm actually not. I'm trying to say it's an apple and an orange. Right. It's a different so, job. You know, the vote, uh, what what a yeah it's a different job yeah it's a different job altogether yeah and so um so yes we can learn from leadership uh from uh those who do a vocation other than ours we can learn from uh the artist's vocation the poet's vocation the businessman's vocation and businesswoman's vocation so by all means we can read those things but i'm constantly I'm not, I don't think, I think we'll be drawn less and less to that. Um, let me, let me rephrase that. Here's one way to think of it. Okay. Uh, as we read, um, I don't know, um, good to great. That's an older book, but that's yep. what's coming to my mind right now. As we read good to great, uh, for myself, I'm also going to be reading Eugene Peterson again. Yeah. Uh, or for myself, I'm going to be reading again some some stuff that Wendell Berry wrote um, as a farmer. Yeah. Um, because f- uh, be- why? Because I got to keep my keep my heart steeped in an agrarian assumption. Mm-hmm. There's a reason the Lord. There's a reason the Lord speaks of time in His Word with an agrarian assumption. Mm-hmm. There's a season for everything. Uh, the Ecclesiastes says, Paul says, we sow in season and out. Our Lord Jesus uses that analogy of sowing seed. And the fourth soil, it's the one with patience yeah. who waited out the other three. So our local business uh, vocation in America is not going to have an agrarian assumption mm-hmm. in its use of time. So if I read one of those books, I have to have one of these others in my hand. That's good, yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Uh, to help me filter it yeah. so that I can clean what's good. Yeah, volunteer management, you mm-hmm. know, work with volunteers, um, uh, uh, how, to, how, to, how to make contact with, with visitors. Uh, you know, I use a, a contact software, you know, called HiRise mm-hmm. um, that salesmen use. Um, I don't use uh, all the stuff that a salesman would do on it, but it's a great way to help me as a shepherd be aware of when the last time was I talked to, a, you know, certain people in our congregation under my care, yeah. you know? So, yeah. That's good. That's helpful and practical. I know, uh, I'm curious to talk to you about this because of, it's an, an area of, I know you've done a lot of thinking, but one of the most taxing aspects of pastoring is uh, certainly preaching week in, week out. Yeah. Uh, you are a preacher. You've written on it at length. Um, you're, I understand, the director of homiletics at Covenant currently, yeah. seminary. So any any tips that you might have, and I don't mean that to sound like a trite word, but any tips that you might have on how to make fruitful and faithful preaching more sustainable in the life of someone who's preaching week in, week out? Yeah. I mean, you know, right now, just saying to my wife, Jessica, I'm out of breath. Yeah. You know, it's just, I'm a solo pastor. Uh-huh. And so it's uh, December. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, 
And I'm thinking, whew, okay, I'm feeling it. It's the fourth quarter with two minutes left to go, and the game is tied. That's right. And, I, <laughs> and you still have the ball. I still have the ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I, there are a couple, I mean, there's a lot to say here, but there are a couple practical things. The first is just acknowledge, uh, acknowledging that so we can laugh about it. Yep. The second is that means that means by now November and December I have I have to have I have to have my a, a Sabbath I have to have a t- a twenty four hour day more than maybe I did in the beginning mm-hmm. I, if you know what I'm saying I do we, yeah. we, more than I felt I needed it in the beginning of the year or something like that so I got to make sure I'm doing that and. Uh, it also means I need to take advantage of a slower pace, at least for me. Less, as we get closer to Christmas, less people are looking to me for personal time. If that happens, I need to not fill that time. Mm-hmm. I, I need to know that I'm, I'm Michael Jordan. Hey, I'd like to be Michael Jordan, right? I need to know that even even uh, LeBron James or Michael Jordan or whoever it is, they have to sit out a certain amount of time as they get older. Yep. So they finish the game well. Yeah. So I need to take opportunity uh, to exercise, which I struggle with, mm-hmm. um, or to rest uh, and know that I it's not a guilty. I don't have to feel guilty. I'm not being lazy. I'm str- strategically resting in the week. That's good. So I have a stamina for Sunday morning. And I got to do that more the end of November, December than maybe I felt I had to in, I don't know, February or something or July. Yeah. And uh, the final thing is, I got to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, as a solo pastor, that means for me asking um, a trusted local seminary student who who is a, a a faithful part of our church who we trust and who we know to give them the opportunity to preach. Uh, it means I need to ask one of my elders um, who's willing to give preaching a try. Yeah. Uh, to 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 go for it, um, and. I, I need to I need to do that as a solo guy throughout the year. I need I need to position strategically position things. And you know, one of the things that a final thing is one of the things the elders have my elders have noticed in me mm-hmm. is that uh, I take vac when I take vacation with family, I'm usually ministering somewhere. Okay. I didn't really pay it. I didn't really notice that. Yeah. But they've noticed it. Yeah. And they've been telling me I can't do that this coming year. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's part of the reason why I'm out of breath in December. Yeah. Is I, though I've though I've taken my time off, and I have been with my family and we've enjoyed it. I've still been doing something on a Sunday morning, right? Or on a you know, or on a Friday night, right? Uh, or, and uh, yeah, I, I can't continue to do that. And yeah. I think they're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. So. How do you, I'm curious as, so now understanding your context, you're a solo pastor, how, how does, uh, I'm always, and this won't interest everybody, but it's my podcast, so I don't care. Uh, (laughs) I'm always curious about how preparation breaks down for various preachers. And so like, I know I read your book, Preaching to a Post Everything World, which is an excellent book I'd highly recommend to, to preachers. And you have a section uh, in the back that sort of breaks down how to do these four things that you're talking about, and you break prep down over the course of the week. Is that still how you prep, or what does your typical week of sermon preparation look like, and how does that break down? Yeah, I'm not a good example to follow. Okay, we'll preface it with that. Yeah, because the uniqueness of my circumstances. But um, uh, yeah, at the back of that book, I still do that. Okay. Uh, But 
I give two versions at the back of the book, if I remember correctly. One is if you're breaking it down through an entire week, and one if you only have like four hours or right, five hours right. to give. I'm the second most weeks. Okay. Uh, you know, it's a, uh, I, I'm typically, if on a Monday, I know what I'm preaching next. I, you know, I, I preach through a series of, uh, an expo- expositional series. Mm-hmm. Usually. And uh, so on a Monday, uh, I know I, I, I'm reading the passage. I'm getting a basic sense of what uh, is there. Uh-huh. And then I'm, then I'm meditating on that through the week. And this is where you don't want to imitate me. I'm up early Sunday morning, uh, uh, bringing bringing meditations from the week together. Okay. Uh, sometimes it's Saturday afternoon, but most of the times it's Sunday morning. Okay. And so I'm I'm not a person who. Uh, so some of my colleagues, uh, you know, they they've got a full manuscript written by Thursday, and that lets them rest for the weekend. I think that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, other colleagues, they're ahead two weeks, you know, two weeks ahead of time. For me, uh, I'm jotting down notes through the week, uh, here and there, mm-hmm. uh, and Sunday morning I'm bringing it all together yeah. uh, for the message. Yeah. I, one part of that though that I think is really important that's been hugely helpful for me was I it is is trying to get into the text and front loading that preparation earlier in the week so yeah. that you do. I mean, I, I think I would, I would lose my mind if I was, <laughs> if I was yeah. trying to pull it together on Sunday morning. Um, yes. I try to do that on Friday, but having had the week to marinate in ideas to, uh, be able to think through, you know, implicate just, just the way that that gives me the ability to then every counseling session, every email, yes. every book I'm reading, everything is sort of being filtered through, that text that I've already spent all that time in. So for me, that has been hugely helpful to start earlier in the week rather than, you know, waiting till Thursday, Friday to start to dig in. Yeah, it matters so much. Uh, it's sort of like saying, um, hey, have you noticed how many yellow Volkswagens there are on the highway these days? Yeah. And then likely we'll say no. Right. But then when you drive home today, you're going to notice <laughs> yellow Volkswagens, yeah. right? So if we have that text on Monday, even if it's just a half hour mm-hmm. on a Monday, uh, in the text, or an hour and a half, uh, uh, then what you just said is it. We're going to notice, now we're just looking at the entire week through the lens of that passage. Yeah, yeah. And whether you're a person who formalizes all that by Thursday, or you're a person like me who's gathering notes. So so if someone heard me say, man, he doesn't start preparing till Sunday morning, actually that's a misnomer. No, I, I started on Monday. right. I'm just not gathering it together till yeah. Sunday morning. Yeah. The process looks different. Yeah. 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 So I'm I'm curious just a little bit more about how many of these things that you've written about impact you personally in your and practically in your personal life and in your ministry life. Are there particular so you mentioned Sabbath? Um, yeah. Are there particular rhythms? You also mentioned praying before and after meetings or yeah. emails. Can you point to a couple other practical examples of rhythms in your life? Um, yes. personally, I want to ask you a ministry question as a follow-up, but just on the personal end, what, what do some of those rhythms maybe that you practice that might give other pastors ideas and be helpful to them? Or does anything else come to mind? Yeah. So the, 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 the day a week, uh, is an email fast for me. So my day off is Friday. Okay. You know, other guys day off is Monday or whatever mm-hmm. it is, but mine's Friday. And, um, uh, I do that because that allows me Thursday night and Friday night yep. to have a kind of rest that I 
you know, of my mind. The other thing is trying not to do email. I try not to check my email for 24 hours. Yeah. And um, the first four hours, I feel like an addict. Totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Want to look to my phone. Yeah. You know, about eight hours in, I'm relieved. Uh-huh. Uh, even though I have a lot of emails waiting for me Saturday morning, um, it's good to let my mind rest. Yeah. Uh, the other practice besides praying before and after a meeting is the four portions of a day. And I talk about this in the book. Um, uh, and so I have Evernote, you know, Evernote, yeah. it's a pastor's friend. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I have a, a notebook called the four portions. Okay. And in that I have, I, I've just gathered passages of scripture and other prayers that have to do with the morning, the afternoon, the evening, and the night watches. And a small thing I try to pray, this is built on an old, if, if you're from a Reformed heritage, this is an old Reformed uh, spinoff of morning and evening. Okay. Of uh, starting the day in the morning with God, ending the day in the morning with God, praying before a meal, praying after a meal, and self-examination, particularly at the end of a day, what to look back through the day for. So here's how that works for me very quickly. One, I, I try to bring the morning to a close and start the afternoon. So I look back through the morning. It's 1145. I'm driving to a, a lunch appointment. I turn the radio off. I turn I, uh, even a great podcast like yours. I mm-hmm. turn off. Yep. Uh, and, and I and I say, okay, Lord, the morning's ending. And, I, and I'm thinking through three C's. Uh, sorry for the three C's, you know. No, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of alliteration, so you're speaking my love language. So go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking through cares, carnalities, and consolations. That's just how I remember it. Okay. What Any cares surfacing from this morning? Uh, the, any, uh, any temptations to, you know, carnalities, temptations of my flesh that were there this morning, any consolations, just blessings from God this morning. And, uh, to, to take just three minutes and speak that to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what happened at 845. Thank you for that little moment at whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, and I might notice that I'm still anxious about something. I still have a care uh, and I saw, what is it? What? Oh, it was that email at, you know, eight this morning that with the title that said concerned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, it's 1145 and I'm still there. Now that's right. key. Yeah. Because I have to, I need to cast that to the Lord. And it's also key to recognize if there's a particular temptation coming my way this morning. Because here's what happens. If I don't bring the morning to a close, then I go into the afternoon in an unmeditated way. And it means that anxiety from the 8 o'clock concerned email is still there in the afternoon. And it means that that temptation is now intensified. Yeah. So have you noticed that by the time a lot of us get home in the evening, we, we if we're married, we fight? I don't know if, if it's yeah. just us. I, I think it's common. Yeah. There's some kind of tensions. It's like when everyone comes back into the home. Yep. A lot of it's because we're bringing our unmeditated day mm, that's into good each other's life, yeah. you know, we just have leftover emotions. Yep. Uh, uh, and we, and because, and we forfeited opportunity for gratitude. Mm-hmm. We didn't notice the very, the small, mostly overlooked things that the Lord was doing. Yeah. So this four portion rhythm, um, culminates into an evening of examination. It's just self-examination. You can find this in the medieval tradition of St. Ignatius, but it's rich in our own reformed heritage as well. Okay. And I, I look back through the day, and I look at the three C's. And I'm just—what that means for me personally is I'm in bed. The lights are out. <laughs> you know, yep. my wife and I, we've finished the day. We might even be holding each other. Mm-hmm. 
She's falling asleep. She's a morning owl. I'm a night owl. Yeah. Cares from the day. Carnal temptations or sins from the day. Consolations, blessings from the day. And end the day with the Lord. Mm, that's awesome. So, I'm definitely when I, using that. When I have the one day a week, if I make it to eight, six hours without email even. Yeah. You know, and I am praying before and after a meeting. And I am in in a four-portion rhythm, which, which really is three to five minutes just to bring it to a close. I'm yeah. on my way home heading to dinner. Bring the afternoon to a close, you know. Yeah. When that happens, it builds exponentially on itself. I'm in a much better posture of attentiveness to yeah. the Lord and the people. When I lose that rhythm, which which does happen, uh, then I notice it. Yeah, you know? that's good. I, notice, yeah. I also noticed that on that that this is uh, has informed really the way that you guys plan and program even inside of your own church at Riverside, like on the website, your website, I noticed that you specify resting months, which I thought was interesting. So for those that aren't familiar with that, could you tell me a bit about that and why you do that? And then are there any other rhythm issues like that, that you guys try to practice? Yeah. So, you know, um, this is, thank you. Every, every church is different. Uh So this is the, this is a programmatic way we've uh, tried to address a concept. So I would encourage anyone listening in ministry to address the concept and how it would flesh out in your local way. It might look different than the way we've addressed the concept, but here it is. Um, our, when I came, our church was six years old, uh, and, uh, as a church plant, and so there's a lot of room to create the traditions and the philosophical assumptions, right? Yep. So I wanted to have a, I wanted to build in strategic rest to the assumption of our place. And the reason why is because we had so many volunteers. Once you volunteer, you're just on it for life, you know? Yeah, right. People feel like they could get off without guilt, right? you know? All right. So we built in resting month, and which is, uh, uh, let's see, April and August and December. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, and so on those months, all of our weekly activities rest. Okay. Be, be, would that be like small groups? Small groups, Bible studies, you know, um, all those things. It's not a mandate. Yeah. An individual leader of an individual group might say, hey, we're going to keep going. Yeah. But it's a freedom. Yeah. When we first introduced that, uh, there was complaint. Uh, now, now everyone's grateful for it. Yeah. And, and we, I say strategic rest. Yeah. Let, I'm going to let our leaders, and part of that in our context, we have so many kids. Mm-hmm. So most of our leaders are, are parents with young kids. They're already tired. Right. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so to say, hey, uh, let your small group end for the month of, of uh, April. Take a break. Uh, get together just for dinner if you want. Yeah. Um, it's a strategic rest so that you can go at it full throttle. Yeah. Uh, for, yeah. And um, so we've done that. The other thing is, is our men's and women's Bible studies meet every other week okay. rather than every week. Uh, you know, uh, again, there are seasons where they can meet more than that. There's not a mandate. I'm not going to tell someone you can't meet to study yeah. the Bible. <laughs> you know? but, yeah. but what I do say is, hey, just remember, eventually we will take a break because we're tired or we're sick or we're burned out. Um so let's just make sure we're taking strategic breaks built in through the year. Let's pace ourselves. None of us are going anywhere. This is a marathon together. And uh, so, sure, keep going, but uh, find a way to build in strategic break. Yeah, that's good. 
it's interesting yeah. on that same topic when, you know, we were a church plant, so we had a lot of freedom to set the culture from the very beginning. And one of the decisions that we made was to be intentionally simple when it came to church programs. Yeah. And so we tried to structure in such a way that maximum from a church activity standpoint, we would be making an ask two days a week so yeah. that they're involved in Sunday morning worship and then in a small group. Not yeah. not for the purpose of, because we're just trying to give people more free time, but so that people had more time to be missionaries in the contexts that God had put them in. Yeah. But it was very interesting, and it continues to be, as, as people visit our church that come from a background, church background that is high on programs, yes. you see how many Christians believe in justification by church activity. Yes. Uh, because they, you know, we've had people even, not a ton, but some that either did not stay at all, or it took them a season of time to sort of reacclimate because yeah. they didn't feel like those two asks was enough, that they needed yes. to do more stuff in order to be more faithful Christians. So it is interesting how making changes like that sort of can can poke and reveal um, just weird beliefs that we have as Christians functionally. Yeah, it's the large famous and now it's just in us. Yeah. So you know what we've begun to do? I'm so glad you say that because we have the exact same experience. We've begun, I've begun to name it. I ca- we call it the Riverside Detox. Oh, interesting. And so we just say it up front. It's, it's, it's a part of our uh, early orientation materials, yep. uh, classes, um, new, newcomers lunch. Yep. Um, and so I'll say it this way. I'll say, uh, so if someone says, Hey, we would, we want to be a member, I'll say, and we want to know how to be a member. And I'll say, you know, how long have you been here? We've been here three months. Ah, you know, wait another three or four months. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, be around six to eight months. And then I'll say why. And here's what it is. Because, uh, when folks first come, generally speaking, they're very excited. They feel like there's fresh air and stuff like that happening here, fresh water, rest. But then eventually it is a detox. They're not accustomed to having that kind of space in their life to actually live a non-distracted evening yeah. in their neighborhood with their own heart and their family. And if we've been distracting ourselves with busyness, it is a detox because now we begin to see the emotions, the thoughts, all the stuff that we've distracted ourselves from. Yeah. And we don't know what to do with it or how to do it. And so I say, you know, so a lot of folks about month seven don't like rivers. They're irritable. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's like they've tried to quit smoking um, and they're irritable. And, um, and they're looking, they're waiting for us in essence to, to bring the next big thing that we're going to do that they can rally around. Yeah. And of course, what we say every Sunday morning is we're made for a large purpose. Uh, but that a large purpose is fulfilled most of the time in small moments of ordinary grace. Yeah, that's good. And, uh, and so eight months in, we're still saying that. Yeah. And so the big thing we're asking someone to do is to get to know your neighbor's name. Like that's the big hairy idea for this year. Yeah. Know your neighbor's name and say a prayer for them. Hmm. Uh, and that actually is harder. That's a relational move rather than a programmatic one. Yeah. And sort of, it disrupts someone from using the program to avoid relationship. And so anyway, yeah, yeah I hear you. We just call it the detox and yeah, we, we've outlined it and named it for people yeah. so they know it's coming. I, a book I'd recommend that people check out. Um, I can't, I'm drawing a blank on <clears throat> the author's name, but it's a new book called Reclaiming Conversation. 
Mm. It's by the same woman who wrote uh, Bowling Alone. Um, mm. I believe that she's a, either a psychologist or a sociologist, but her book is primarily about how our addiction to screens is impacting mm. our, our ability to have a conversation and to practice being present. Mm. And I think that every pastor should read that book for the impact right. that it's having on our souls. But then, yeah. but then also just... it. it I think that that's one of the most common ways currently in our culture that we are constantly filling our time with activity is with screen time and yeah. Twitter and social media and all of these things. And it's just destroying our ability in, to have human relationship, but also just to even be able to practice many of the things that you've talked about and written about in the book because mm -hmm. we're too, it makes us too uncomfortable to be quiet yeah. that long, to be alone that long and to be present. And, uh, so that's, a. it's, I, I'm listening to the audio of it right now. It's a really, really fascinating and, you know, discouraging book at the same time <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> we're just being destroyed by some of this stuff and we don't even realize it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to give you the opportunity, um, a lot of young pastors and planters listening, if you were to have some closing thought or encouragement, what, what, what is it that you would want to say to young pastors um, who are right in the thick of so much of what you're talking about? When you think back on yourself 20 years ago, what do you wish that, that you would have known or what would you say to yourself? Uh, that you're already enough uh, before you were before you had the title of pastor or church planner, you prayed and the Lord heard your prayers. You looked to Jesus and the Lord was faithful to you. He was your portion and you were his. Before you were ever a pastor or did anything like that, he was already enough for you. You were already enough for him. Um, don't let uh, false ministry measures rob you of that truth. Uh, yeah, that's what I'd say. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your book. We will uh, we'll put links up in the show notes, both for The Imperfect Pastor, but then also for uh, other books that you've written, because you've written uh, a host of great books. So thanks so much for your time, Zach. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you. My thanks to Zach for taking the time to chat. And as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen in. As always, I hope you found it helpful. I'd love to hear your feedback about this episode. So drop me an email at ryan at redemptionbc.org and let me know what you thought. And don't forget, you can stop by my blog at ryanhugley.com for all the other ways that we can stay connected via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find any additional show notes that you might want from today's episode. Until next week, I counted an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.